Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Milo. I ran into a herd of children in the back who all said, it's cookie time. <laughs> and I know that's really what's going on inside of your minds right now as well. So just track with me for a few moments. And uh, we're going to open up God's word this morning. Uh, and uh, so let's get started. So in my house, we've got uh, the bigs and the littles, uh, meaning we've got two older kids and two younger kids. Today, our older kids were on the floor uh, helping wrangle kids, then we had the younger kids were on the stage with you uh, this morning. Now, in my own life, uh, I've always thought that bigger is better, meaning that if you're taller, you're more successful, you get to play basketball, everybody likes you, and those of us who aren't quite as tall always feel like we're a little bit behind the curve. Uh, in our house, the bigs have a later bedtime. The littles don't have a later bedtime. Uh, they have an earlier bedtime. I assume that in all of your lives, those of you who are six feet and taller, you always have a later bedtime than the rest of us. <laughs> We're missing something out. The bigs have chores. The littles, they don't have chores. The bigs have access to the iPad. The littles barely have access to it. So if you think about it, bigger is better, I guess. I suppose I wouldn't say, though, that little is worse. This morning we would just say little is cuter, if nothing else. Would you agree with that? Uh, by the way, if any of you adults think that, that you would be able to raise your arms and dance and spin in a circle and, and run up on the stage, not any of you could do that. In our house, we have a big, giant Christmas tree. We have a, uh, an addition this last year that we added with like a vaulted ceiling. And so the biggest tree we can get, the better. My wife feels like the tree really should be crammed up against the ceiling to make sure that you use the maximum amount of space possible to get that tree into the room. So in our house, the bigs, the family, we have access to the big Christmas tree. And for many years, we had the little Christmas tree that we would put in the kids' bedroom so that they could decorate it, they could do whatever they wanted to, but don't touch the big Christmas tree. In the same way, we have a nativity set that we have at home, and there's the nativity set, and it's at kind of a prominent location in the house. And we also have the kids' nativity set that's down lower where they get access to it, and that one's made out of rubber so that that one can be played with and used because you don't touch the other one. That's the little one. And then we also have uh, an, an 1800 Civil War era uh, Christmas train that I was given when I was a, a young person. And so I've had it for all these years. And so that's our family Christmas train. And then we have the $5 Goodwill Christmas train uh, that we have underneath the tree where the kids have access to it. Now the reality of the situation is uh, the big Christmas tree last year, I was the one who threw the ball to the dog much too close to the Christmas tree and nearly took out the entire Christmas tree. Last year, I was the one uh, who, not last year, a few years back, who wound up that 1800s Christmas train and heard it snap inside of it because I had wound it too tight. You see, it's not always better to be bigger. We're in a sermon series called uh, The Songs of Christmas. And so we're looking at Christmas carols and looking at what the theology is behind them. And these songs that we sing year after year, where do they come from? Why does it matter? What do we care? Last week we, we looked at the Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We were reminded of the simple truth, the simple definition of Emmanuel, God with us. 
And this morning we're going to look at the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. O Little Town of Bethlehem. Little doesn't mean insignificant. Little doesn't mean safer or better. It's quiet in Bethlehem. There's no iPads. There's no traffic. There's no jets flying overhead. There's none of that. There's no trains. There's no ambulances coming because of uh, some crime that's happened in the town. No, it's, it's quiet. Bethlehem was, is, and probably always will be a small little town steeped in ancient history. In the first century, we would have thought about that. There would have been some type of marker, some type of, of place mark in the city that said, this is the home, once the home of King David, the first king of Israel. There was dusty scrolls that were left by ancient prophets that told perhaps, perhaps one day something significant would happen once again in our little town that would put us back on the map once again. But we cannot presume that we can make a little town of Bethlehem safe for the little ones all the time. You see, the reality is, as, as we're going to go downstairs in just a moment and eat our Christmas cookies together, it would, it would be easy for me to, to have a sermon this morning that oozed of eggnog and Christmas. But that's not what Bethlehem is about. If you've got your bulletins you this morning, you've got a little sheet of paper in there that gives you the outline of where the message is going this morning. And here's your first fill-in for you. In the little town of Bethlehem, darkness surrounds the night. Darkness surrounds the night. If you know the Christmas carol, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Now this morning, as we let our kids dance around the stage and we clap and we understand there's a lot going on there that's just special and it is so precious because the, the cares of the world are not on these children's faces. But you're here this morning and underneath the surface, underneath the water, there's something churning inside of you. Christmas is a lot more complicated than it first appears. Christmas for you is very complicated. And some of you, in, my, in your own eyes, you're going, oh my gosh, it's Christmas again. We've got to deal with this again. We've got to deal with the drama. There's, there's family coming to town, and you know this uncle and this aunt, we've got to make sure that they don't sit near each other because you know what they're going to do. They're going to ruin Christmas again. This person's going to talk about how much they love Trump. This person's going to talk about how much they hate Trump. This person loves walls. This person loves whales. This person hates walls. This person hates whales. Keep them away from each other. Christmas is complicated. Christmas is expensive. Christmas is tiring. There's all this drama, and there's, Kevin, look what you did, you little jerk, and I'm going to feed you to my tarantula, and all of that. <laughs> That's not even what I'm talking about, because all of this stuff is our own fault, and we've made all of this up, and we've created all of this stuff, but there's Christmas that's complicated way before that. Christmas is complicated when Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem to pay their taxes. Can you imagine this today? Can you imagine not being able to e-file or not be able to send it in, but that you had to go to D.C. to be able to pay your taxes? Or even more so, you say, you have to go back to the place that you were born, and that's where you're going to pay taxes. 
And there's no Delta Airlines, as much as you might be angry about getting in line. There's none of that. No, there's no Uber. There's no other way to get there. You're going to have to travel there and be there in person and go through this journey that's incredibly difficult to pay your taxes. And then you get there. And there's no reservations. There's no room. Are you telling me that because this was planned from the beginning of time, that God could not have set aside a room for them at the end? He couldn't have planned it out and made it simple that by the time they got everybody together, here's the room, here's the spot, here's what's waiting for you there. No, even that would be complicated. Thousands of years in the planning, this little town of Bethlehem. The Bible is full of prophecies Thousands of them. And this is like the eight ball corner pocket. God calls the perfect shot. He didn't just accidentally make the three point shot that banked off of the side and says, oh, oh, bank, I got it. No, 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 no. This was planned from the beginning. He spelled exactly what he was going to do. The birth of Christ had over 300 prophecies that are fulfilled when Jesus is born there in Bethlehem. Really, really specific stuff that go beyond banking it off into the corner pocket. It's like bouncing it off the moose antlers, hitting the wall, and then dropping it into the pocket. It's absurd how much God did to make this possible. In the town of Bethlehem, Darkness surrounds the night. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, a copy of God's Word, I'm Matthew chapter 2. If you're grabbing the Bible there in front of you, a new international version, that's the black Bible in front of you. I'm at page 1009. 1009, the new international version here. We've got to look at how the darkness is surrounding Bethlehem. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is the one who has been born, the King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, they asked him where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. Now your Bible should have this offset or some type of marker that says this is a unique passage. It's going back to an Old Testament. I'll read it first here from Matthew chapter 2. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is from the prophet Micah. 8th century B.C. He's a prophet. He's a contemporary of Isaiah. It's a very large uh, prophet in the Old Testament. Prophesying about the coming, specifically the coming invasion of the Assyrian army. And how the Assyrians would come down, having ravaged all of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now they were going to come into Jerusalem. And they'll come all the way into Judah and will threaten Jerusalem. And more importantly for our text, specifically Bethlehem, which lies very close at hand to Jerusalem. As the Assyrian army is coming in, those of you who are Bible scholars, you know that they actually didn't make it all the way to Jerusalem because there was an angel waiting for them there. And the angel took care of the Assyrian army. But nonetheless, they did ravage Bethlehem for sure. And the question that's being asked here in this passage uh, in, in Micah chapter 5, will Bethlehem always be downtrodden? You don't have to turn back to Micah. It's a small book. I'll just read for you the original passage that's being quoted here. 
It says this in in, uh, Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old or from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the, wor- of the earth. This was written 8 B.C., 800 years before they are there in Bethlehem. And they are looking at the star. What on earth is going on. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above the deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. There's a stillness in Bethlehem that is suffocating. There's a stillness in Bethlehem that is choking them. Therefore Israel will be abandoned, it says in Micah, until the time. Picking up in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and quote, worship, unquote, him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them and it stopped over the place where the child now was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is a beautiful scene. But we cannot, we must not scrub away the dirt, the filth, of Bethlehem. We cannot scrub away and sanitize what we are looking at here. We must not uh, look at the stable and, and warm up the barn with space heaters so that we can see it in our modern context. I served at a church in South Carolina, which is a different climate than we're in here. Uh, we met in an elementary school every single Sunday for four years. Uh, but every Christmas Eve, because we couldn't get into the elementary school, there was a red barn in the neighborhood. And then we would rent that red barn and we would have our Christmas Eve services literally in the barn. And we would do all we could to try to clean this place up so that we could invite people into the barn for a Christmas Eve service. But at the end of the day, friends, you are in a barn. Last week, we had out in our old bus garage, we had, uh, that was Bethlehem Marketplace, where we talked about the story and how it comes alive when you get to interact with it and be fully immersed in what is going on there. And many of our volunteers did all their work that they could to get that thing looking good. We had a few specific volunteers who are really, really certain that they want things to be as clean as possible. And so in the cleanup process, I was told by one of these volunteers, don't worry, I just finished mopping the attic space before we start putting things back in place. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Of all the things that we've got to do, we've got to make sure that the attic space of the old bus garage where all of our stuff is going away, never to be seen again, we have to mop it first. And this person did, and it's really clean up there. So if you ever want to go up and check it out, 
Sometimes you're going to let volunteers do what volunteers are going to do. We cannot scrub away the dirt, the grime, the darkness that is in Bethlehem. In the town of Bethlehem, darkness surrounds the night. In Matthew 2, the account does not end here. Too many times in our messages and too many times when we look at this passage, we stop here, we close up the Bible, and we move on. But this is not where it ends. You see, your next fill-in, Herod's plan is the death of Jesus. Herod's plan is the death of Jesus. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take this child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took this child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. You see, while all of these prophecies are being fulfilled, all the divine prophecies from the Old Testament and the New are being fulfilled, there is someone who is out there trying to do all that they can to actively, antagonistically stop Christmas and make sure that it's put to an end before it even begins. The enemy had the most powerful person in that area, uh, in that country at this time, and knew God's plan. He was going to stop it at all cost. He had activated, he had empowered, the enemy had put in place this lunatic king who was going to stop at nothing to make sure that this baby would not survive. This young child, Jesus, would be killed. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This no longer tastes like eggnog in Christmas, does it? Herod's plan was simple, the death of Jesus. He didn't want there to be any competing king running around because he was King Herod and he was the king, the only king in Israel. In truth, he was a puppet king. He was a puppet king because Rome was in charge and they liked to put a local leader in charge and install these little kings in areas that could kind of sort of run the place there and allow them to gather taxes and, and, and allow them to have all the, the authority that they could have there in their little domain. The luxury of kind of ruling the area was a perk that they got because of it. But Rome was in charge. But Herod, he took this power very seriously and he was on an enormous power trip History tells us he was a very short man, and so he's the ultimate kind of Napoleon complex going on here. He liked to call himself, get this, Herod the Great. Furthermore, he referred to himself as the King of the Jews. Now when you hear that, something ought to trigger, something ought to fire. You ought to hear that. And some, some, where have I read that before? Because it, it should remind you of the sign that was hung above Jesus on the cross, written in three different languages. Here he is. He is the king of the Jews because Jesus would actually be the long-awaited king of the Jews. 
Here's your next fill-in. Through death, Herod would put an end to Christmas. Through death, Herod would put an end to Christmas. If he has to kill every baby in Bethlehem and make sure that this little baby does not live, fine. He would be glad to do it to ensure his spot on the throne. Now you may be thinking about saying that there's no way. There, there isn't really someone who would be that twisted and would be that sick. Let me demonstrate for you how, how damaging this person was. History will tell us that he murdered two of his own eldest sons in cold blood because he was sure that they were trying to poison him and hasten his own death so that they could take over the throne. He was crazy suspicious. His wife, who was Jewish, the only reason why he could call himself the king of the Jews because he himself was from Edom. He was an Edomite. He wasn't even Jewish himself. He put her to death along with her brother-in-law because he was certain that they had come up with a plan devised to take over the throne. Then later he also had his mother-in-law put to death because of the same reasons. In fact, it was common saying in that time that they would say it would be more thankful, it'd be more, it would be better to be Herod's pig than it would be to be his child. Through death, Herod could put an end to Christmas. But check this out. Through Christmas, God would put an end to death. Through Christmas, God would put an end to death. In Genesis chapter 3, when God made Ab and Eve, he pushed them out of the garden because of their sin. But he told them, God promised them that his son Jesus would be coming, born of the seed of the woman, coming to do what? To crush the head of the serpent. The serpent had his opportunity to strike at the heel, but God was going to crush its head. Imagine this week that you got a strange text message from a number that you don't know. I know you get emails all the time from people you don't know. Every once in a while you get text messages from people you don't know and you dismiss them. But imagine that this was a text message that came to your phone. It said, next Thursday I am going to crush your head. I mean, you can dismiss a lot of things, but that one you might pay attention to. At least next Thursday, you might pay attention to what's going on next Thursday. You are going to do some things to try to make sure that there's no threat to your life. The reality is this is what Satan has been up to. He's been given the time and the place, and he knows that his head is going to be crushed. And so he has tried to come up with a strategy by which he can defend himself. Through the Old Testament, he has been at work trying to devise different plans that would pull this apart. He's trying to avoid getting his head crushed. But God has a plan. God has a better plan. You see, Herod's plan was the death of Jesus. God's plan the death of Jesus. Not as a baby, but as a full-grown man. He would say, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down, and therefore that means that I can willingly take it up again. I have the power to lay it down and the power to pick it back up again. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him 
to the highest place, gave him a name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue acknowledge and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the gospel message, friends. That's the message of hope. That's the rescue plan. That's what Bethlehem is really all about. You see, in the darkness, in the choking stillness, God is at work. God is moving. And as the silent stars go by, in the dark streets shineth, says the song, the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met right here in thee tonight. As the band comes up, we will sing this song. I hope singing it in a way that brings it alive for you in a way you haven't seen it before. The story behind the song is this. Reverend Phillips Brooks greatly admired his president, President Abraham Lincoln. He passionately preached the gospel in Philadelphia. He passionately prayed for his country during the dark days of the American Civil War. He was a staunch abolitionist, and he ardently looked forward to the day when slavery would be eliminated from this, his beloved country. Then one day in April of 1865, his president was killed. Reverend Brooks grieved deeply, especially when the president's body came through his city there in Philadelphia, and he went and he saw it on its way before it went to its final resting place in Springfield, Illinois. With the deaths of hundreds of thousands, now with President Lincoln's death fresh in his mind, Brooks hardly knew what to do with his grief. A few months later, he decided to take a long trip. He went to the Holy Land at Christmas time. His journey included a trip on horseback on Christmas Eve from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Imagine what it would have been like to go on that trip. I know actually some of you have more, more recently been there, but this is in the 1800s on horseback. There's no commercialism to it. There's no uh, different ways that you would be drawn into different sites there. No, he was just there in Bethlehem at Christmas. And as he passed through, all the healing in his soul, he said, began there. Three years later, he composed a poem for himself around Christmas time. The following year, he went to his organist and he said, I want to, I want to turn this into a song that our children could sing in their Christmas performance. Their organist, when he gave the music to him, was a procrastinator. He had given it to him six, seven months in advance, and he did absolutely nothing. He said, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll get to it eventually. And it wasn't until the night before that he woke up in the middle of the night, got up out of bed, and played the melody that became the song that we know, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I pray this morning that you don't sanitize the little town of Bethlehem. I pray this morning that you would see our kids up here and enjoy this, but know that beneath the surface there's something far greater going on, that in the dark streets 
comes out the everlasting light that every man, every woman, every child needs to be shining out into the darkness.